This is Jeremy Park, CEO of City Current, personally inviting you to Growth Current. Growth Current is our e-learning and online personal development platform with City Current. It's an opportunity to attend virtual events with global thought leaders, national guest speakers, and experts who can help you grow personally and professionally. It gives you access to success secrets, lessons learned, learning modules, and so much more. Subscriptions are only $8 a month, and you can do bulk subscriptions for your team. Check out growthcurrent.co to learn more. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now here's our host, the CEO of City Current, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers podcast produced by City Current. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. We have with us a good friend, a best-selling author. He's got a new book coming out. It's called Stronger Through Adversity. His name is Dr. Joseph Michelli. How are you doing, Dr. Michelli? It's great to be with you, Jeremy. It's always a good day when I'm hanging out with you. Hey, well, you are a prolific writer, someone who dives into the world of customer service, innovation, leadership, adversity. So we get to talk all about that, which is going to be really exciting. But the fun of Changemakers is we get to know you personally. And so give us a little bit of just where you grew up. Talk about your childhood. All right. Well, and my therapist and I thought, I thought we got that all out with my therapist. Now, <laughs> uh, you know, I was raised in this tiny little town called Florence, Colorado. It has 3,000 people, 3,000 residents. It doubled in size, though, after I left because the federal prison uh, was moved to Florence, Colorado, and they count all those inmates as citizens. So I come from a town of 6,000 where half of the population is, you know, felons. But it was a great, great upbringing. I love the small town. It was the place where you could, uh, you could go to the pharmacy and, you know, they just put it on the tab. Uh, and my dad would pick it up at the end of the month, right? So very, very lovely childhood. And then from there went to the University of Denver, did a triple major, didn't know what I was going to be when I grew up, ended up going on and getting a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Southern California and, and merged from clinical into corporate consulting. Was any of that from your parents in terms of psychology, customer service, like where, where did that interest come from? Well, I, I quote my parents all the time now as I get older. It's amazing how much wisdom they had in them. My dad uh, did graduate from high school, went to the, to the CC camps and then to World War II, shrapnel several times, Anzio and other locations, uh, and worked in a construction plant, a cement plant. My mom did not graduate from high school, um, so no background in formal psychology, though she was pretty emotionally intelligent, I will tell you. Uh, and worked lots of odd jobs just to pay for an all-boys college preparatory high school I attended. Uh, but no, it, there was no formal educational background that aligned with what I ended up doing. I was the first person in our family to go to college. Was there any moment, because like you said, going to college, you didn't necessarily know what you wanted to do, but at what point did it start kind of clicking like, you know what, I really like getting into the minds, especially for customer service. And like, when did that kind of click and start to solidify the direction that you wanted to go? So I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I was kind of pursuing that path. And I was working for a district attorney in, uh, as an intern. And I got involved in a case. It was just horrific child abuse. And the individual who had perpetrated the offense had a prior. And I got really interested in knowing why the legal system was so reactive and hadn't really done anything to intervene in the first incident. 
And uh, so I started meeting psychologists. That particular individual was ruled not guilty by reason of insanity. I got very interested in what is insanity, what is, you know, what is competent to stand trial. And so I thought I was going to be a forensic psychologist or a, a lawyer with a psychology degree. And I, I did some of that in, after I got my psychology degree and realized that I was more interested in, in larger audiences and less dysfunction. So did you always enjoy writing? Because I mean, you've got, for anyone who can see on screen, you have a lot of books. And when you go through uh, the Airbnb way, five leadership lessons for igniting growth through loyalty, community, and belonging, driven to delight, delivering world-class customer experience with the Mercedes-Benz way, leading the Starbucks way, the Zappos experience. I mean, you've got a lot where you really work with very well-known brands. But to me, I see you as someone who enjoys asking a lot of questions, but also to just enjoys writing and sharing. So, so was that always the case growing up? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question for me. I think Thoreau is a writer. Like he woke up in the morning and he had to write. Uh, that's not me. I don't wake up going, oh, I got to write today or else it's going to be a bad day. I, I got involved in radio when I was 13 and got a broadcast license at 13, got on the air in radio at 13. So I think verbal communication was something I've always been passionate about. Um, and then once I got to be a psychologist and I start working organizationally, I started helping brands transform their customer experience. Then I felt some obligation to share their story. And one of the first brands I worked with was the Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle, where they throw fish. And they had just had a hugely successful video and they'd had a hugely successful book read, written by Ken Blanchard. And I'd been working with the, the founder and CEO of that company. And we decided to write a book in his voice. And uh, it was out of trying to help Johnny tell the story of his fish market that I got started writing. And from there, I've just been writing about all these other brands that I've got a chance to work with. Tease the audience a little bit with, you can't pick your favorite because it's like trying to pick your favorite child, but we'll say the, the top ones that come to mind in terms of your books and some of the favorite lessons that you learned, give us one or two. I think the Starbucks experience, uh, you know, I'd, I'd done the book on the Pike Place Fish Market just down the street from the Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle is the first Starbucks store about two blocks away. And so being able to meet and work with Howard Schultz and Howard Bihar and the founders of, of Starbucks, the real framers of Starbucks, that was remarkable to me. And to be a part of a company that was just meteorically rising and then to be able to tell their story in, I hope, a warm way where we got to tell what did baristas do at a basic level to remember the names of the people they served, to have a fond farewell, uh, just the small acts that made a difference uh, that created delight for customers. One other book I would just throw out kind of quickly, which is The New Gold Standard about the Ritz-Carlton. It's probably my most well-received book. I mean, obviously, Starbucks books sold more, but people just tend to find great value in how good good can be like that aspirational level of service. What if we could anticipate customers needs instead of just meet them? Uh, you know, what if we, we had this mystique of service that the Ritz Carlton has, how do they do it? And that's been a very popular book. When you take that a step further, cause you are um, always out there speaking and obviously the pandemic has changed it a little bit, but even right now you're doing a ton of virtual events what are one or two of the main points when you look at the Ritz-Carlton, that experience and, and really kind of getting ahead and thinking of things on a gold standard versus just a basic standard, what's one or two bits of advice on that front? Well, it's, the service is really simple. All you need is a flawless product delivered exactly as people want in an environment of caring. 
Um, and once you realize that nothing is flawless, then you just try to aspire to as close as flawlessness as possible. You, you seek perfection in your service delivery. And that's the Ritz-Carlton. And then, you know, you can't always deliver it exactly as the way people want it. People will forgive you if you really give it a good try and you give them plenty of options. If you do fail, then the fail safe is to never let down the importance of caring. So care that you didn't quite deliver it the way they wanted, make it right and do something slightly extra to surprise and exceed their expectations. For you as a writer, we, I know we have a lot of people that uh, watch these and listen to these who either are writers themselves or want to become a writer. What's some of the best advice that you've received or that you've learned along the way, but in terms of being an author? I think write a lot. I mean, just get a lot on paper. You know, I think we edit more than we write when we're first starting. We want that perfect sentence. I've yet to write one. So, I mean, I think you just want to produce content. You also want to get your content out there to people other than folks who are just going to tell you how much they love everything you do. You want kind of a, an honest uh, appraisal of your work, not people who are out to rip you apart or to tell you that that you, you have such a beautiful handwriting, right? I mean, you, you just need people who authentically tell you what impact the work has. I think once somebody reads it, it's good to say, what do you remember about what I just wrote? And when whatever that is, that's the stuff you want to keep in. And the other stuff that they don't remember, you have to ask yourself, do I really need this in here? Uh, how do I emulate more of the type of content that was memorable in the, in the life of the reader? Great advice. Let's talk about the book that is available right now for pre-purchase and then obviously is coming out. We'll let you talk all about that. But the book is Stronger Through Adversity. And when you look at um, you know, the, the, the way this book was created, obviously with the pandemic, but you had a chance to interview over 140 business and community leaders. And when you talk about Target, Google, Microsoft, Coca-Cola, and then nonprofits like Feeding America, United Way, um, very respected brands, but obviously a great wealth of knowledge for how they are dealing and navigating with the pandemic. So that's the tee up. Take it from there with Stronger Through Adversity. Yeah, you know, it, it ties back to the other stuff, right? So because I consulted for Starbucks, it wasn't all that hard to get uh, a hold of the folks in Starbucks who were kind enough to give me C-suite level uh, voices on what they were doing in response to the pandemic. Um, that leads you into somebody else in Seattle. They say St. Michelle Winery, for example, and I didn't know the CEO of that company, but as a result of this, I got to know him. And he introduced me to this thing called the Seattle Challenge, where all these business leaders from Seattle, Microsoft and the like, were coming together and talking about how do we collaborate to share knowledge about what Starbucks learning in China that might be relevant to us to anticipate things that are happening in the US. So, so it ends up 140 people I got to talk to about how they were trying to cope with position and lead their organizations in the biggest challenge I think leaders are going to face in their lifetime. Who is someone that surprised you in a good way? So when you talk about being introduced to these leaders and these businesses, who is someone that, you know, you, you meet them and all of a sudden in a good way, you were really, really impressed. So it's going to be somebody not on the big name list. So we, we have the Brian Cornells, we have the Hans Vesper. Brian Cornell is the CEO of Target, Hans Vesper, CEO of Verizon. We have lots of C-suite players. But one of the people that, that struck me was a police chief from Overland Park, Kansas. Uh, and I'll probably get his name wrong here. I, I want to say it's Frank Donches. But what was really fascinating about him was how much he cared about trying to 
not just police, which is incredibly important given his title, right? But to also engage the community. They actually found a time in the day that their officers could do those drive-bys for birthdays. They created a process wherein people could make a request for the police to be able to do that drive-by for birthdays. I just felt like that's a little more of a public servant than just a public safety officer. Yeah. Talk about the major themes because in the book, you cover crisis management, keeping employees and customers safe, maintaining a culture of engagement, rapid innovation, all obviously necessary components. But when you start to distill them and what you want the reader to take away, give us a couple of highlights for the major themes of the book. Well, one of the, one of the themes of the book is uh, when the map and the terrain diverge, choose the terrain. So let me kind of explain that. Like, you know, you thought you had a roadmap going into the pandemic and then suddenly the pandemic hits and your roadmap is kind of worthless. Uh, and you got to kind of throw this map out and you got to pay attention to the ground that's coming at you rapidly. And to pay attention means you're going to have to listen very intently and you're going to have to sift through a bunch of noise to try to see if there's a signal that can guide your positioning so that you can end up thriving through this thing. And so a lot of methodologies around pulse surveying, how to use Zoom calls to listen for the truth beneath the confusion, how often to listen, how often to survey, when were you surveying too much? Uh, you know, when was there too much volatility in, the, in what you were getting from your surveys? All of that's in the, in the book. And I think it's, it's helpful for us to remember how disoriented we were early on. And I think many of us are still reasonably disoriented about how do we get to where we need to be. I already know the answer to this because I've had a chance to interview you prior to this, but um, I think it is important because in many cases we put business leaders, especially the names that you're mentioning on a little bit of a pedestal or on a big pedestal. And we think they have all the answers. They're, they're, uh, they're strong and, and they can make it through this. And yet when you sit down with them, it's like, no, I have no clue either. I'm trying to figure this out as well. So share, share your experience on that front of dealing with these amazing business leaders, but yet kind of their humbleness as well of, of going through this and how it affected them personally and mentally as well. So I'll give you an example of the massive humility of leaders. So uh, Jeff Daly is the CEO of Farmers Insurance, dun, 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 people, you know, and, um, and Jeff told me that his people came to him and said, people are going to be driving less we could lower the premiums for, driver, for drivers uh, on auto policies. And Jeff said, I'm a little worried about how long this is going to go. We're strong financially, but maybe we should save some of that in reserve. And, and the next week, USAA went out and gave a give back to auto policyholders. And Jeff said, I was wrong. I should have listened to my people. We became a fast follower. We immediately matched them. There was no problem there. But why did I not lead in belief of my people. And a lot of them questioned, doubted, didn't sleep, worked too many hours, uh, were panicked. You know, they won't say that, but they told me that they were right at that edge of trying to maintain a reasonable amount of calm for their people. But inside of themselves was a massive churning that made sleep difficult for a lot of them. And I think that's important, not that misery loves company, but I think 
when you start looking at, and I know even for me, like, you know, nights of no sleep and just trying to figure out how do we make it through? Because especially, you know, as uh, an, an executive or a business owner or whatever title you have, if you have other lives depending on you and you're responsible for them feeding their families, it is a weight that you carry because you realize, okay, we've got to make it through. It's on me to do that. And so you do, you carry that burden and it, it is a burning burden. And so I think it really is helpful for others to realize you're not alone. Everyone else is going through this and we're dealing with it the best we can, but you're not alone. And so I think that's a- Yeah, well, the pandemic left us alone together, if you know what I mean. We definitely felt alone and we were all together in that aloneness. So could we reach through to be able to find others who were like that? Could we share it? Could we be honest about it? I think the leaders that were honest who- who I, I like to call it an honest lullaby. You know, it's like we have some tough roads ahead. We, I believe that we working together can get ourselves through that. But let's be honest about what we're facing. I, I think that's important. You know, in the book, we do talk about some optimism biases that leaders demonstrate during this time. They want to believe everything's going to be okay, and they confuse that with everything's okay. Um, and so let's let's sell the optimism, but let's you know, let's pack full of realism and admit what we don't know, which is what we heard a lot of leaders talking about in, in the course of our interviews. Did any of them talk or do you know, you know, from just your knowledge of them, where they leaned on for support? Like, did they have, like, where did they go? Because sometimes you hear it's lonely at the top. And so all of a sudden then they internalize it. But where, where did you find or was there any talk of just their support network and kind of where they were going to lean on for support? Yeah, you know, for example, in the nonprofit space, they tend to be fairly competitive because fundraising is so challenging, right? I mean, they don't overtly compete, but they are competing for a wallet. And uh, they got together and they banded together. There's a large pack of nonprofits that worked together, shared best practices, lobbied. You know, this is a, a pretty major employer. Uh, nonprofits as a in Moss is a fairly major employer. And so they lobbied for some of the, you know, the protective funds to nonprofits. Um, so I saw people, you know, going out to peers. Other times they went outside of their industry. So I was talking to a guy who was in manufacturing who went to food service related colleagues that, from a prior lifetime. And he felt that it was safer to talk to people who weren't in his industry uh, to get their guidance on how they were approaching it and then extrapolate toward his industry. I think that's an important aspect of, of your book too, is that you know, you're not focused on one industry, you're focused on obviously a wide variety. And so you're looking at a very broad landscape. Now, obviously, you're interviewing them specific to what they're dealing with within their industry and their company. But overall, you cover a very wide spectrum. So you're kind of seeing the 50,000 foot view and the common themes throughout, which is a nice, nice piece. Yeah, imagine talking to the president of Microsoft Commercial, which is oversight into things like Teams, which was blowing up uh, and then talk to, uh, you know, president of Marriott, uh, who was trying to figure out how to manage furloughs and, you know, all of the challenges therein. So it was a very different, some were winning, some were losing, all were struggling in one way or another. What's something that you took away? We'll, we'll, we'll take this in two pieces. The process of writing the book. What's something during the process of writing the book that you had, you, you kind of took away as a lesson learned? 
So I was writing a book about Godiva chocolate at the time. Uh, I was about to go to the, the plant in Pennsylvania and they closed down just out of an abundance of caution to make sure that they didn't let people go into the plant uh, unnecessarily. And so they put a pause on the book. And so I immediately called my publisher and I said, wow, you know, we're not gonna be able to go forward with that right now. I said, I am talking to a lot of CEOs and they're sharing a lot about how they're trying to manage this thing. You think there's a book there? And, you know, having had a track record with my publisher, McGraw-Hill, for a long time, she said, why don't you send me a proposal when you flesh it out a little bit more, we'll see where we go. Well, probably the next day I had fleshed it out enough, staying up all night and sent it over. And within a week, we had a book deal uh, and an expedited publication plan. So it'll be released in December. All that said, it meant to get the book done 20 hour days myself. So to all that talk about taking care of yourself, we can just kind of, you know, uh, takes one to know one, I guess, I don't know. But uh, suffice it to say, we've. I was the one who did all the interviews. So I interviewed everyone and then I would write and four hours a night I would sleep and I'd get up and do the same thing all over again. And did that for about eight weeks, which is about a third the time of my fastest writing. Uh, hopefully it doesn't show, uh, but I, you know, they spent a lot of time editing it. So maybe that's, that's their salvation, but that was the process. It was very much, we've got to pivot we cannot write a book that we had planned. So what is the right book to tell and what message do I wanna share and who will give me the time to help get the right message out there for generations of leaders? I think this is a great, just for, for those who are the authors, how did you go about creating it? Did you do the interviews through like Zoom and then transcribe them and then try to distill or did you go in with kind of a thought process? So you were asking specific questions based on kind of what you were looking for was it vague? And then you found what you were looking for. How, how did how did it start coming about? Yeah, I think this goes beyond authors. It goes to all content creators. You know, you got to go out and just start harvesting. And once you get some content, then you got to start thinking about what are the themes that are emerging from this? What's relevant to an audience? And there's a lot of amazing things people told me that, you know, just don't hold together in any kind of storytelling kind of way. Um, so, there's a lot of good stuff on the cutting room floor, if you will. But, you know, at first it was just getting all these people interviewed and you get a, a critical mass of them and then you can write a couple of chapters and then you can start to imagine where the next chapters go. And then you have all these interviews and you got to transcribe them and then you've got to code them and then you got to move. This one's going to go to chapter 20 and this one's a chapter seven. And have we used this person before? Uh, how, you know, it's, it's uh the making of the sausage was, uh, oh, that's where my team is just amazing. They, they keep it all together. And I, I'm just the guy who knits together the quilting pieces uh, in the end. Going back to your comment about the cutting floor, what's something that's not in the book that you wish either you could have put in, had the space for, or just, you know, obviously it didn't fit, but you thought this was a great, great piece of knowledge. So I talked to a nursing supervisor in Los Angeles and I was, you know, it was, it, just a long, long conversation. And I took three or four pieces from her in the book, but I could have just written the entire book around her, right? I mean, she was the leader. I could have done a parable book about her. This is a person who, you know, who made decisions at times like, I can't go in there because my, it was, she was on the uh, COVID unit and her team was in in full garb and somebody is dying and, her nurse is shaking as she's trying to hold the iPad uh, so that family can do their last goodbyes. And every story from her was like that. So I only could tell like three of her stories, but there were 
umpteen other stories about how she felt like a terrible mom because she hadn't seen her kids in forever. And yeah, it was one of those things where I just wanted to put her in a little you know, bottle and bring her in and pour her all over the book. And I could only spark, sprinkle her a couple of places. So then going back to before, so that was the process of writing the book. What's something that you learned after finishing the book? I, I learned that most people are looking for some hope. They're kind of, their hope meter is a little down right now. And so they're looking for stories of resilience they're looking at, at they're looking for authentic stories of resilience, not you know manufactured stories. So it's been interesting because the book's yet to come out right now, but the m- amount of interest in it, support, uh, reviews that are being done on it, uh, lots more than a book about Airbnb, which was the book that I did prior to this. You know, Airbnb is kind of those cool little how did they get there from a couple of air mattresses story, right? And, and now a very interesting story after what they went through for COVID. And there is a little bit of storytelling about them. I compare them to StubHub. StubHub took the position of, we're not going to refund your money for your tickets. We're going to give you a credit against future purchases. Airbnb said, if you can't go do your booking, we'll refund you, the person who did the booking. Both of them are you know, in the marketplace and they're the middleman. Um, and so it's interesting, but, you know, talking about Airbnb or, or those kinds of decisions has not had the same kind of interest level that this book has already garnered. What's interesting though, is once again, Heck, you didn't interview me for the Airbnb book. I'm, I'm trying to point that out. Look, this is evidence right now. Hey, well, but this is, it's, it's interesting because you have a rare vantage point where, and that's a great example. You get to see on both sides, how companies respond to a situation and then look at, well, what does that mean for the customer and the long-term impact that it creates in terms of loyalty and trust and, and them re-engaging? And so I think it does give you a, a really cool vantage point to see, okay, company, you do this, they do this, what's the end result, especially looking after a certain period of time and what does that mean for, do you go down or do you go up? So, well, and, and I left that to the reader, though. I also note that the CEO of StubHub, who I interviewed, is no longer the CEO anymore. And there is some lawsuit talk. And, you know, anyway, the point is, there is no winning position. Imagine being a leader in this, you know, you've got a marketplace. How do you get the money back from the people who bought the tickets to go to the concert? Uh, and how do you make the, the company still viable in those times? And what about the furloughs at Airbnb? Uh, there are a lot of stressors that were going on for leaders and continue to go on for leaders. How do we reopen safely? What if we have to cut back from 50% to 25% occupancy? These, you know, I know that leadership gets a bad name because of a lot of the political ranting and raving that people do on either side of the aisle. But for me, the kinds of anguishing moral decisions that had to be made throughout the pandemic was the crucible of leadership. It will be how leaders are known in the next decade. How did we stand up? Did we fire people on Zoom? Or did we compassionately anticipate, work with them, position them for, the, for their best launch into their next endeavor? What would you say is, and I don't wanna say the major, a, we'll say a major trend, that you're focused on outside of what we're talking about the pandemic. Cause like on my end, when you talk about CSR corporate philanthropy, it's the fact that social impact is now mandatory. 
businesses must be engaged in the community. Customers are making their purchasing decisions based on it. Employees are choosing where to work based on it. Now you're seeing that evolution really take hold in the sense that companies now are being forced to take social issue stands, political stands in some cases. And when you look at the Black Lives Matter and a lot of these movements, companies typically would shy away from being involved in those but now customers and employees both are forcing the hand to say, what's your stance? So I think that from my vantage point is a pretty major trend uh, that's taking place really more recently. In your world with you know, what your view is, what would you say is a major trend that has your attention? That has my attention. I mean, it does. And it, and it did, I think for a lot of folks through this, they knew that this could not just be all about them. You know, if you look at, at this book, I'm giving a percentage of the royalties back to Direct Relief, one of the nonprofits. And so for me, it's important that we don't just make profit, but we do good, right? And, and I think that that issue is particularly important. I think brands that don't have a soul, that they don't stand for anything, or they just start standing for things because the wind blows one way and then it blows the other way and they're all over the map. If, you don't, if you're not grounded in a soulful set of meaningful values and make decisions through that values lens, you don't succeed. And I spend a ton of time in this book talking about how much culture and values and mission and purpose made a difference in keeping people inspired. It helped make more efficient decision-making. Should we do this? Should we do that? Well, what's the mission statement say? Let's be guided by our values. How is this going to have an impact on the broader, longer term world that we live in? Um, that I heard that over and over from leaders. And I think it wasn't just that it was forced on them. I think they realized it was in them. And if it was in them, it gave them something to grab onto when everything else was moving. Um, so I, I found that to be the rock, the anchor for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. When you're rooted in purpose, that gives you power. So talk about where to get the book, website, talk about that for sure. So the book is titled Stronger Through Adversity, and it just so happens the website is the same thing. So if you went to Stronger Through Adversity, we're going through it, the full spelling lured through, uh, strongerthroughadversity.com, uh, you'll find on there an offer for 40% off of list. It's less than what you could get at Amazon, and we'll sign it for you. And so uh, it's the best deal going up to launch. Uh, so please feel free to jump there. If you prefer buying from Amazon, that's the way you like to do it. You can do it there and pre-order it. It'll be out in December. Be a great gift for the holidays, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also too, even though it's, it's time stamped in terms of the pandemic, the simple reality is the lessons that you learn through the book are, are things that you can apply as really foundational success pieces moving forward in the future, no matter what time. So I think there's, there's really core pieces that come about through the time of adversity, but the reality is you can apply them from this point forward, no matter what. We had leaders talking about, you know, kind of the, the social unrest uh, that was also going on in the country simultaneously. I, I think these principles will have applicability beyond the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we'll start kind of wrapping up with some just fun lightning round, short questions, short answers. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, get, get relaxed, get ready. So what's a recent book you've read outside oh, of your I own? Always read this. Oh, no, I always read the same books over and over again. I'm sorry to say Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. So if you're reading him over and over again, are you looking at it from a deeper lens or are you trying to refresh? 
I know I always see something different when I read them at a different point in my life. The wisdom of that book, what I really got out of it recently was that there were people who were starving at the end of the concentration camp and they still gave away food to people who were hungrier. And so what I never read that into it before, but the message I got from that was that not many people will do that, but that as humans, we are capable and that's what should inspire us all. What's a family tradition for you as a, as a child? What's a family tradition that you uh, remember fondly? Making pizzelles with my mom and dad, and I do it with my kids. That's cool. And they'll hopefully do it with their kids. Well, that's what I was going to ask next is what's something that you've carried forward with your family? So that's, there you go right there. What, what do you like to do to relax? Oh, I love to play music. I love to fish, but I've been playing a lot more music and haven't been doing much fishing really. So when you're playing music, what is that? Uh, guitar, singing, writing songs, playing covers, what, 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 what? dive in deep. Yeah, in all of that. More covers than writing songs. Uh, I have to be super inspired to write a song and, and uh, yeah, that, but definitely covers and guitar. What's your go-to one or two songs? Oh, I'm a Van Morrison freak, so Brown Eyed Girl is my go-to song. And uh, does your family get tired of it, or do they put up with it? <laughs> uh, they're they're incredibly tone deaf, and uh, you know they're fabulous people. No, they they really enjoy it uh, and encourage me to do it more. So nice, that's good. Because my wife is like, you play the same songs over and over. I think it's time to move on. <laughs> <laughs> your wife's probably more honest than mine that's a, that's a noble thing i hear the same songs over and over can we move on to the next one please <laughs> um <laughs> what's a quote or a saying that inspires you oh I, I think there's i use them all over in all times in my book but um i think one of the the great quotes for me uh, is that you you don't really have to you don't have to be perfect to be loved. And it's a very simple quote. And I think that oftentimes we, we think that what makes us lovable is our striving for perfection, but what makes us lovable is our adorable imperfections. And I think it starts with loving ourselves through those imperfections that, that enables people to access us. What's a favorite or a, um, where's a good vacation spot that you enjoy going with your family? So during the Airbnb book, I went to a little place called Danville. It's just outside of Orlando. And it's this really wacky sort of compilation of buildings by this older gentleman who converted his airplane hangar into an internal town. You'd have to see it at Danville uh, Airbnb. And what I loved most was not only how wacky the place was, but how charming the host was and just how engaging. I, I, I can't wait to go back for the next goat happy hour. Uh, at, in Danville. <laughs> so your, your experiences are just all over the charts. <laughs> what, what, kinda... well, what's a, uh, outside of City Current, so I'll throw the disclaimer, what's been a favorite speaking experience? Oh, I, I don't know. You guys, you, I, I can't exclude you. Sorry, I'm not going to follow the rules. It's your show, but I don't care. Uh, going to Memphis, I will never forget that event. I remember the night before and being able to interact with students I remember, you know, the breakfast was just amazing. There was actually the flag from 9-11 given at the end of my speaking engagement. This was years ago. 
Uh, I remember going to my hotel just off of Beale and uh, interacting and having access to guitars from the Gibson factory across the street and bringing guitars up to my room. I remember doing, you know, clips on video afterwards, how much I love Memphis. So um, I'm sorry, you can't exclude yourself. <laughs> Breaking all the rules. I love it. But I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, what's interesting about that is the fact that you remember so crystal clear. And even on my end, like, I had forgotten that you're right. We presented the 9-11 flag and it still hangs at the fire museum here, but that, that gift we presented at your event. And I, so little things like that, what's, what's, so my point is when you go about trying to genuinely just pour in and create experiences, many times you don't realize the ripple effect of what the other person is experiencing or what they're absorbing on their end and what they'll always remember. And so my point is so many little things that you do throughout that butterfly effect that you have no clue or comprehension that it's making a difference on somebody else. In many cases, it comes full circle to this point where it's like, oh yeah, I, I totally had forgotten about that. And yet that was a really special moment. It was. And I think one of the things that does increase the likelihood of something being salient for people is if it's charged with emotion. That was certainly a high emotion moment. Uh, and I think that we need to think of how to celebrate positive emotions, lift them up a little bit more. If somebody's having some pain, how to pull that up a little bit. And if we can focus on pain and peak and end moments, uh, we create a lot more memorable experiences in people's lives. Carry that forward because you mentioned like even with Starbucks. The is this a lightning round? I'm sorry. Well, I think we've we, 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 lost control about, of your own show. But, you know, back to back to breaking the rules. It's like you kind of take it on some really interesting threads that I think are really important. But when you're talking about that, like the intentionality of the Starbucks baristas to, to say their name and write them and use that as a point to really engage them personally. Right. I think to your point, when people are going through pain and suffering or when they need to be celebrated with a, an, a special event or occasion, give us one thing that either you've done or seen others do or something around that that you've written about that shows the power of intentionality. Yeah, so, you know, I worked with a lot of home builders and oftentimes they were throwing away that key ceremony, right? This is a massively amazing time. You have just gotten your home and we've just done the punch list and we've done, you know, it's really kind of perfunctory transactional instead of let's put a big giant bow on this. Let's make sure it's perfect. Let's, you know, take pictures of you inside of your home, whatever. It is the taking a peak moment and putting a bow around it so that it is even more emblazoned in your memory. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's trying to remember where are the positives? How can I amplify them? If you think about concerts you've attended, all those concerts across the course of your life, normally when it comes to mind is the train wreck concert or the over the top wow one. Of all of the gray memories of other concerts, this one just jumps out. And we're, it's our job to try to amp up the, the, the volume on those moments so that our memory will stand out, kind of the flag thing yeah. uh, as an example. Yeah, great stuff. Who's a mentor? Outside of your your parents and your kind of family circle, who's been a mentor or a strong uh, impression in your life? So I get to interview them all the time on my live stream. And yesterday I had Howard Bihar on. So Starbucks was created by Howard Schultz, Oren Smith, and Howard Bihar. Two H's and one O. We used to call it H2O. So um, the Howard Bihar was the, the servant leader of the group. 
Howard Schultz, who we know mostly was the visionary and Oren was the get it done, you know, organizer. And so Howard Bihar has always been my hero. His book called It's Not About the Coffee is just flipping brilliant. His business principles just ring through. And so he's been a mentor of mine. I had him on my live stream just yesterday. Uh, so not only do I get to interact with them as they coach me, but then I get to share them with the world. And it's, wow, it's so cool. Who's someone that you wish you could interview? You, right when are you available? You're always on the outside of the mic as far as I'm concerned. I would love to interview you. When are you ready to come on the live stream? I'm putting you on the spot because when I do, I want to talk to people about what does it mean to be really authentic in your social consciousness? Not as an affectation, not something you put on because you think it's going to ingratiate you with some kind of audience, but what does it really mean? if you took that lens to all that you do. And we've had some great ones on. Blake Mykoski, who did Tom's, he's in the book, by the way, Tom's Shoes. You know, these are people who, who really, I think, early on said social entrepreneurship is good intrinsically, and then it's gonna be good for business too. Absolutely. Hey, whenever you wanna do it, I'm available. And, and you know, the answer to that is I've, I've always found that you go in with just a genuine, curiosity, but also to a genuine desire to help others. And especially with interviews like this, what's funny is, I mean, I, I do interviews all day and people are always like, well, um, you know, what questions are you going to ask me? What this? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to get in the moment and we're going to be in the moment and whatever comes out. I just know that what, what is going to interest me and what would interest a, a listener, so to speak, very much like you talking about writing a book is, I just want to add value and help. And if I help somebody in some way, then I feel like I've done my part. And that's, that's the end result is to try to make you better tomorrow or today than you were yesterday. So in the end, it's- well, I got this on tape. You're going to be on my show. That's the key thing. All the rest of that stuff, I didn't listen to. No, I didn't. <laughs> what you said, which was powerful, and it links back to that memory thing we were talking about, is that if you're in your experiencing self, you're more likely to create memories. If you're in that narrator self, like uh, instead of being with you present right now, if I'm thinking about, I have a, a thing later tonight in Singapore. If I'm thinking about what am I gonna do in Singapore later tonight, instead of being with you right now, I'm narrating and commentating on all that. I, I don't create memories. I'm just too distracted to engage. And it takes human engagement to, to create memorableness, so. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And you, and you miss the magic of the moment where that's where the real heart, but also the real powerful things come out is if I'm just sticking to a script, we lose so much of the power of just a thought going this way, but yet that's where the nugget is. And I always feel like my my whole you know goal is to get you at some point to say, oh, that's a good question. I've never thought of that. It's like, if we can get to those sort of moments that are introspective, but add value, then everyone wins. Um, and, and you do this a lot. I do this a lot on both sides. We interview and we are interviewed. But, you know, I hate the ones where they say, can you write three or four questions for us to ask you? It's like, wow. Uh, yeah, that's great. Can't wait. Right. Versus somebody who's authentically wanting to know. Like, I don't think I've been asked for a quote lately. I felt like I stumbled on my answer to you, but it was authentically what came to mind. I know I know other quotes that mean a lot to me, but it's the part of the naturalness of it all. If, yeah. if, you, if I know that I'm going to be asked what quote, I'm going to go research a quote and I'm going to have it readily available and it's going to be super cool. Um, I don't know that people get to know you very well. You know, when you're talking about this 
getting to know you format of yours being just asking real questions is, is great. Well, I agree. I appreciate that. Last couple of questions. One is, what do you hope that many years from now, I mean, you're, you're literally crafting your legacy with each book you write and with, with each speech you give, but what do you hope many, many years and decades from now that you hope your legacy is? Super simple. I've got this one now. This one I don't have to research. Uh, I have the answer readily available. It's to serve those who serve well. Now, there's a couple of caveats there. I'd love to serve everybody, but uh, I've come to learn that I can only do so much. So I tend to try to identify people who are authentically committed to doing good so that I can invest in them. And, and that includes my family. So I, I'm committed to making sure they understand the importance of doing good and doing well. Uh, and then I want to pour myself into them. Nice. Last question is the easiest of all. You mentioned the, the book website, but talk about on your end personally, where can we go to follow Dr. Joseph Michelli? Where can we go to learn more about all of your books, obviously including Stronger Through Adversity, but where do we go to be on the up and up with everything you're doing? The great thing about having a weird name like mine is that there aren't a lot of other people competing for it. So, you know, I, I tend to have it on Twitter, you know, so it's Twitter slash Joseph Michelli or, or there on LinkedIn, you can find me with that. Just looking for Joseph Michelli. If you can figure out how to spell my name, you can find me a million ways till Tuesday. My website's josephmichelli.com. I'll spell it once. Everybody knows Joseph is J-O-S-E-P-H. And then it's M-I-C and then it's hell uh, I. So uh, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-I, we'll get you there. Um, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-I. <laughs> I think you've done that a few times. I can't wait if, if you get the uh, the telemarketers trying to spell it out. Like, let me give you the narrative on how to do it. Because mine's like, Jeremy Park, like you park a car. So trying to yeah. explain it. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Shelley, greatly appreciate all you're doing on your end. Love that not only are you sharing your gift, but also too, that you make giving back such a big priority of that and a big piece of that. So thank you for all you do. You are a change maker. Thank you for being a part of the change makers podcast. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to the change makers podcast produced by city current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts insurance to learn more about our guests and share your stories of others leading by example, visit us online at citycurrent.com or follow us on social media using at city current. Please make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast wherever you listen. Now think big, start small and act now be a change maker.